Every Monday in June, we are focusing on the LGBTQ plus story, and we wanted to shed a light on an LGBTQ plus foundation, organization, or charity. Today, we are talking about the Trevor Project. The Trevor Project was founded in 1998 by the creators of the Academy Award-winning short film Trevor. The Trevor Project is the leading national organization providing crisis intervention and suicide prevention services to LGBTQ plus young people under the age of 25. They have a lifeline with Trevor Chat and Trevor Text if you're uncomfortable talking on the phone like I am. They have workshops on suicide prevention with the CARE model, Connect, Accept, Respond, and Empower. They also help school leaders with LGBTQ plus suicide prevention programs, as well as social media platforms and youth councils. Visit thetrevorproject.org to find out more. If you or someone you know is thinking about suicide, please call the Trevor Project 24-hour hotline at 1-866-488-7386 or text START, S-T-A-R-T, to 678-678. As always, the Creep Show podcast is a safe space for everyone, but especially for those in the LGBTQ plus community. We love you. Happy Pride. All right, welcome to the Creep Show. That's Ashley. I'm Sarah. What's up, everybody? And today we are joined by Preston and Roy again. Hi. Hello, hello, hello. We are starting our Pride Month um, episodes. Um, in case you didn't know, June is Pride Month, and today we are talking about the Stonewall Riots, aka the Stonewall Uprising. Um, it is one of the most important events in LGBTQ plus history. The Stonewall um, Riots were um, basically the foundation for LGBTQ plus in America. If you hear any noises, we got a puppy dog over here. So <laughs> Rusty will be joining us as well. Yeah, he's our other guest. He may come in and growl at things. <laughs> it's not an EVP. It's not that. a demon. It's just a dog. He's just a puppy. So as you heard at the beginning of the episode, we are shining a light on the Trevor Project, an amazing outlet for LGBTQ plus youth. Please go to thetrevorproject.org for more information. So we're going to start um, at the beginning. Um, which is a very good place to start. Um, following the social upheaval of World War II, many people in the United States felt a fervent desire to restore the pre-war social order and hold off the forces of change. According to historian Barry Adam, as I read that weird, but whatever, spurred by the national emphasis on anti-communism, Senator Joseph McCarthy conducted hearings um, searching for anti, or sorry, searching for communists in the U.S. government, the U.S. Army, and other uh, government-funded agencies and institutions, leading to a national paranoia. Anarchists, communists, and other people deemed un-American and subversive, subversive were considered security risk. Gay men and lesbians were included in this list by the U.S. State Department on the theory that they were susceptible to blackmail, which makes so much sense. Um, <laughs> in, in 1950, a Senate investigation chaired by 
uh, Clyde R. Hoey noted in a report, it is generally believed that those who engage in over, overt acts of provision, perversion uh, lack the emotional stability of normal persons. Makes sense. And said all of the government's intelligence agencies are in complete agreement that sex perverts and government constitute security. So they they just have to say sex perverts. Right. That's what you perverts. You two perverts, I tell you. Sex perverts. (laughs) You got to make sure you got to specify sex perverts. Apparently there's more than one type of pervert. I thought that's what pervert means. (laughs) <laughs> Between 1947 and 1950, 1,700 federal job applications were denied, 4,300 um, people were discharged from the military, and 420 blaze it, no, were fired from their government yeah. jobs for being suspected homosexuals. Throughout the 1950s and 1960s, the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation and police departments kept lists of known homosexuals, their favorite establishments, and friends. The U.S. Post Office kept track of um, addressees where uh, marital material. Wow, thank you. Marital material, material girl, and a material world. <laughs> Sorry, I had to add that in there. Like, um, material in the material world. The homosexuality was mailed. State and local governments followed suit. Bars catering to gay men and lesbians were shut down, and their customers were arrested and exposed in newspapers. Cities performed sweeps to get uh, to rid neighborhoods, parks, bars, and beaches of gay people. They outlawed the wearing of opposite gender clothes, and universities expelled instructors suspected of being homosexual. Um, there was actually also a on another podcast that I listened to. They talked about men had to wear three layers of clothing because it was deemed more masculine to wear more clothing. Like the less clothing you wore, the more susceptible you were of being like a homosexual. Wow, because that makes sense. Um, so it's like 100 degrees outside and you have to wear like three layers of clothing. Jeez. Yeah. I like having a heat stroke when you try to walk down the street. It's fine. Right. So in <clears throat> 1952, the American Psychiatric Association listed homosexuality in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual as a mental disorder. A large scale of, or sorry, a large scale study of homosexuality in 1962 was used to justify inclusion of the disorder as a supposed pathological hidden fear of the opposite sex caused by traumatic parent-child relationships. This view was widely influential in the medical profession. So it's all your mom's fault. It's all your mom's fault. Yeah, we're fearful. We're scared. Yeah. Yeah. My God. It was her drapes. That's what did it. Her drapes! (laughs) Damn it, mom, you and your drapes! (laughs) Also, I just wanted to point out for anybody listening, um, if anything sounds weird or funny or different, we're using a different mic because we have four people talking instead of just a normal two. So, yeah. Um, uh, Where was I? Okay. In 1956, however, the psychologist Evelyn Hooker performed a study that compared... Oh, a poor woman. I'm sorry. I just named Hooker. Hooker. You hooker. I'm sorry. <laughs> Miss Hooker to you. Miss Hooker. Thank you. Miss Hooker. Um, that she performed a study that compared the happiness and well-adjusted nature of self-identified homosexual men with heterosexual men and found no difference. 
Her study stunned the medical community and made her a hero to many gay men and lesbians. But homosexuality remained in the DSM until 1974. I want to stop you because uh, I'm not sure if you've ever heard, but um, something that you want to, because I've been thinking about this since uh, following the social upheaval of World War II. Mm-hmm. So did you know that when, during the Holocaust, it was not over for everyone right. when it was over. So what was uh, interesting <laughs> is that all, whenever, when, uh, when everyone got put into the concentration camps, Everyone had like this patch on their um, outfit that identified them for why they're there. Okay. Okay. And I, I believe I may have to look this up, but I believe that if you were there for being a homosexual, it was a pink triangle. I think that's right. Okay. And so when 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 Hitler fell. And everyone was released. The LGBTQIA, all of them, they were not. Right. They were kept as prisoners because under the German law, mm-hmm. that was still an illegal thing to be. And therefore, the Holocaust did not end for them. Right. Right. So, you know, just a little tidbit to think about, you know, look, yeah. in, look into it. I don't want to go too much into detail and go too much off subject. But, you know, it's it's really, really crazy to sit there and think that, you know, a lot of you know, a lot of people were freed that day, and it was great. But like, you know, a lot of us, a lot of you know, the LGBTQ community, yeah, was not. Right. They were still kept in those camps. They were still there. Right. Well, and things are still happening today in some countries where you can be killed. So, mm-hmm. like the Middle East, especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure what country, so I'm not going to disrespect. Yeah, I don't know which one. I, I don't know. Really. I know somewhere. somewhere in, uh, I believe, in Africa as well. Okay. Um, and Russia. Yeah, yeah definitely Russia. And no. we're not even going to talk about Chechnya. Yeah. So, no. but, but yeah, no. So, you know, those who are um, listening and you do uh, identify as part of the LGBTQIA uh, community, you know, just know that if you felt it was super easy to come out and you felt that it was so um, like non-threatening, you didn't get bullied, you didn't, you know, anything like that. Thank your stars. Yeah. Know you're lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Thank your ancestors. And thank, and thank completely thank your ancestors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially when we continue finishing the story that we're going to tell today. Right. I want everyone to know what it took to get to where we are now. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the fight, you have to realize that the fight's still going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, it's a, it's gotten a lot better since it was then, but we our rights are still threatened every day. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like it's kind of going in reverse now. Like, things are getting worse. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Like, everybody's trying Especially to go back under- to, like, 1950s. It's like, so we got we got to not- a peak, and now everyone's going back down to where we were, and like, we can't no. let that happen. No. no. So. Thunder, he who shall not be named. Uh-huh. Cheeto dust. Um. Cheeto dust. Rusty. Go lay down. Rusty. But. I don't want to. What? 
Um, okay, so in response to this trend, two organizations formed independently of each other to advance the cause of gay men and lesbians and provide um, social opportunities where they could socialize without fear of being arrested. Uh, Los Angeles area homosexuals created the... Do you want to help me out there? <laughs> Matachine? Matachine? Was it? Where, where, uh, the blue, Mattachine? Yeah, I don't, I have no idea. Mattachine Society. Your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) I think it's Mattachine. Mattachine. Yeah, Mattachine Society Society. in 1950. I don't know. Think of like machine Mattachine. Yeah. I don't know. We're we're trying our best, but I (laughs) pick Mattachine. Um, in the home of communist activist Harry Hay. Their objectives were to unify homosexuals, educate them, provide leadership, and assist sexual deviants with legal troubles. Facing enormous opposition to their radical approach, in 1953, the Mattachine uh, shifted their focus to assimilation and respectability. They reasoned that they would change more minds about homosexuality by proving that gay men and lesbians were normal people, no different than heterosexuals. Soon after, several women in San Francisco met in their living rooms to form the Daughters of Belitis. 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 For lesbians. Although the eight women who created the DOB eventually or initially came together to be able to have a safe space to dance, as the DOB grew, they developed similar goals um, to the Mattachine and urged their members to assimilate into general society. I want to say this is kind of how in season seven of American Horror Story Cult, Uh um, this group was kind of mentioned only in a much more serious tone than what this was right. but it makes me wonder if this is what he was referencing mm-hmm. in yeah. cult but anyway continue <laughs> one of the first challenges to government repression came in 1953 an organization named one inc published a magazine called one the u.s postal service refused to mail its august issue which concerned homosexual people in heterosexual marriages on the grounds that the material was obscene, despite it being covered in brown paper um, and brown paper wrapping. The case eventually went to the Supreme Court, which in 1958 ruled that One Inc. could mail its materials through the Postal Service. Homophile organizations, as homosexual groups self-identified in this era, era, God, grew in numbers and spread to the East Coast. Gradually, members of these organizations grew bolder. Frank Kamini Kamini founded the Mattachine of Washington, D.C. He had been fired from the U.S. Army Map Service for being homosexual and sued unsuccessfully to be reinstated. Uh, Kamini wrote that homosexuals were no different from heterosexuals, often aiming his efforts at mental health professionals, some of whom attended Mattachine and DOB meetings telling members that they were abnormal. In 1965, news on Cuban prison work camps for homosexuals inspired um, Mattachine, New York, and D.C. to organize protests at the United Nations and the White House. Similar demonstrations were then held at other government buildings. The purpose was to protest the treatment of gay people in Cuba Cuba, and U.S. employment discrimination. (laughs) These pickets shocked many gay people and upset some of the leadership of the Mattachine and the D.O.B. 
At the same time, demonstrations in the civil rights movement and opposition um, opposition to the Vietnam War all grew in prominence, frequency, and severity throughout the 1960s, as did their confrontations with police forces. The Stonewall Inn, located at 51 and 53 Christopher Street, along with several other establishments in the city, was owned by the Genovese, Genovese crime family. In 1966, three members of the Mafia invested 3500 to turn the Stonewall Inn into a gay bar after it had been a restaurant and a nightclub for heterosexuals. Once a week, a police officer would collect envelopes of cash as a payoff, whoops, sorry, as a payoff known as a gayola. Wow. What? Yeah. Yeah, gayola. Gayola. Yeah. Like, they called it a gayola. Like Crayola? Gayola. <laughs> a gayola. Yeah, at least they got color. Wow. I mean... Gayola. Crayola. I don't know. Uh, as the Stonewall Inn had no liquor license, it had no running water behind the bar. Dirty glasses were run through two tubs of water and immediately reused. There were no fire exits and the toilets overran consistently. Though the bar was not used for prostitution, drug sales, or other cash transactions... Uh, oh, sorry. Drug sales and other cash transactions uh, took place. Uh, took place, and it was the only bar for gay men in New York City where dancing was allowed. Dancing was its main draw since its reopening as a gay club. Visitors to the Stonewall Inn in 1969 were greeted by a bouncer who inspected them through a peephole in the door. The legal drinking age was 18, and to avoid unwittingly letting in an undercover police, who were called Lily Law, Alice Blue Gown, or Betty Badge. <laughs> Betty Badge, I like that's that. My favorite one. <laughs> Betty Badge, I'll take that. Visitors yeah. would have to be known by the doorman or look gay. The entrance fee on weekends was $3, for which the customer received two tickets that could be exchanged for two drinks. Patrons were required to sign their names in a book to prove that the bar was a private bottle club, but rarely signed their real names. There were two dance floors in, in the stone wall. The interior was painted black, making it very dark inside, with pulsing gel lights or black lights. Oh, that's cool. I like that. If police were spotted, regular white lights were turned on, signaling that everyone should stop dancing or touching. In the rear of the bar was a smaller room frequented by queens. It was one of the two bars where effeminate men who wore makeup and teased their hair, though dressed in men's clothing, could go. Only a few transvestites or men in full drag were allowed in by the bouncers. The customers were 98% male, but a few lesbians sometimes came to the bar. Younger homeless adolescent males who slept in nearby Christopher Park would often try to get in so customers would buy them drinks. The age of the clientele ranged between the upper teens and early 30s, and the racial mix was evenly distributed among white, black, and Hispanic patrons. Because of its even mix of people, its location, and the attraction of dancing, the Soul on Inn was known by many as the gay bar in the city. Like Stefan? Uh, I, I, I don't know. Stefan, <laughs> definitely. It's like dancing is its draw. New York like, Club what is the Blice. Oh my god. What is this place? Footloose? Like dancing is the main oh, draw? Footloose. Like, doesn't every club have dancing? Like, I would think. Not if you're gay. Not if you're gay. Shoot, yeah. Apparently, in some. That's true. I like, suppose. in some towns, still, they're. Uh, somewhere, in, I think somewhere in Texas, my brother told me, "What? 
they could not have a bar in this town mm-hmm. at all. Like, oh yeah, no, there's dry counties. All over the place. Oh, dry counties. Are, there's even I think even Illinois may have oh, a dry yeah. county. Um, uh, Mount dry Vernon, dancing. where we went to see Rob, my brother. Mount Vernon, oh, really? Yeah, because we drove there to get alcohol. They didn't fucking have any. Oh, that's why. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah, no, dry counties are still very much a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <sighs> motherfuckers. No, it's Police mother. raids on gay bars were frequent, occurring on average once a month or for each bar. Many bars kept extra liquor in a secret panel behind the bar or in a car down the block to facilitate resuming businesses as quickly as possible if alcohol was seized. Bar management usually knew about raids beforehand due to police tip-offs, and raids occurred in, uh, early enough in the evening that business could commence after the police had finished. <laughs> During a typical raid, the lights were turned on and customers were lined up and their identification cards checked. Those without ID or dressed in full drag were arrested. Others were allowed to leave. Some of the men, including those in drag, used their draft cards as identification. Women were required to wear three pieces of feminine clothing and would be arrested if found not wearing them. Employees and management of the bars were also typically arrested. The period immediately uh, before June 28, 1969, was marked by frequent raids of local bars, including a raid at the Stonewall Inn on the Tuesday before the riots, and the closing of the Checkerboard, the Telestar, and two other clubs in Greenwich Village. Historian David Carter presents information indicating that the mafia owners of the Stonewall and the manager were blackmailing wealthier customers, particularly those who worked in the financial district. They appeared to be making more money from extortion than they were from liquor sales in the bar. Carter deduces that when the police were unable to receive kickbacks from blackmail and the theft of uh, negotiable bonds facilitated by pressuring gay Wall Street customers, they decided to close the Stonewall in permanently. And then there's a little uh, graphic here of exactly how um, the bar looked when you came in. So as you can see, it's it's literally kind of one of those, um, you know, storefront, you know, classic oh, storefronts. Yeah. Okay. You walk in, there's a little coat check, and then you go to your right, there's the bar, and there's a dance floor on the other end, and then another dance floor here. But this is this dance floor area, I believe, was what... The room that they were the talking queens. about with the queens. Uh, the exactly. I was about ready to say. Really the does. station house. The way. Yeah. Out. Yeah. It really does. You walk in there at the bar and then you go in that other room where like the drag yeah. shows were and then there was like, another area in the it's, back. This yeah. is the front here. Yeah. No yeah. No, there. you're right. Yeah. Move things around just a little bit here yeah. And, and yeah. The station house. Oh, God. Is, yeah. There's like, this will be the back door. You yeah. come through. The toilet, station house the was. The toilet where you pray to the porcelain Rest gods. in peace. Yeah. Um, it was a. Uh, uh, yeah. They need to switch this around. Bar, but they had drag shows. And um, it burned down last year. Yeah. Yes. It yeah. burned down yeah. whenever they were trying to remodel it. Uh, yeah. uh, grease. Uh, grease rags. Mm-hmm. Or, or oil rags. Um, combusted. And. Uh, Set the whole place on fire. It was a sad day because yeah. the station house was. So many memories. Uh, it, I mean, it was there for many years. Although <laughs> I will say this, station house, no. station house went through some time where it was closed, and then it opened again, and then, then it, it closed. closed. But the second time it closed, it was mainly because of a, uh, someone else bought it and did a whole remodel on it. Yeah. And uh, but oh, you could not get around. This bar was oh, like. Yeah. 
I swear, I wonder how many. I, I wonder if they ever had any um, fire violations. Mm. Yeah. Mm. They probably did. That place was. If there was, if there was, if it was a drag night, you yeah. were lucky if you got like you were able to get through the doors where the bathroom were. But trying to get to get a drink, especially when the bar was used to be the full horseshoe before they pushed it against the wall. Yeah. yeah. Unless you went out with me, who gets everywhere early, like we did last time. We went to a drag show there with my <laughs> other friend. Um, we got there early and we're sitting up in the front and got to dance with the queens. And my friend got a freaking like a. A shot like a through a, a syringe shot. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's amazing. That was awesome. Nice. All right. So, um, do you think it's a good time for a break? Uh, our break doesn't happen yet. Oh, our break doesn't happen yet. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. We're like, bitch, I'm on break. <laughs> I will continue this. Is that okay? Yeah. Two undercover police women and two undercover policemen entered the bar early that evening to gather visual evidence. As the public moral squad waited outside for the signal, once ready, the undercover officers called for backup from the sixth precinct using the bar's pay telephone. Stonewall employees do not recall being tipped off that a raid was to occur that night, as was the custom. According to Duberman, there was a rumor that one might happen, but since it was much later than raids generally took place, Stonewall management thought the tip was inaccurate. At 1.20 a.m. on Saturday, June 28, 1969, four plainclothes policemen in dark suits, two patrol officers in uniform, and Detective Charles Smythe and De- 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 Deputy in- Inspector Seymour <laughs> Pine Deputy Dewey. Sorry. arrived at... <laughs> The Stonewall Inn's double doors and announced, police, we are taking the place. The music was turned off and the main lights were turned on. Approximately 205 people were in the bar that night. Patrons who had never experienced a police raid were confused. A few who realized what was happening began to run for doors and windows in the bathrooms, but police barred the doors. Michael Fader remembered, Things happen so fast, you kind of get you kind of got caught not knowing all of a sudden there were police there and we were told uh, to all get in lines and to have our IDs ready to be let out to the, of the bar. The raid did not go as planned. Standard procedure was to line up the patrons, check their ID and have female police officers take customers dressed as women to the bathroom to verify their sex. Yeah. Uh, excuse wow. me. Yeah. Excuse me. Excuse me. No. <laughs> yeah. I feel violated. This was in 1969. Mm-hmm. 51 years ago. 51 years ago. Taking them to the bathroom. I would feel so fucking uncomfortable. Seriously. Imagine how Show they actually. Show me your genitals. Yeah. Ah. This is what they had to. This is what we went through. Mm-hmm. Or they this went through. Sad. This is what they did. Those dressed as women that night refused to go with the officers. Men in line began to refuse to produce their IDs. The police decided to take everyone present to the police station. After separating those suspected of cross-dressing in a room in the back of the bar, Maria Ritter, whose family did not know that she identified as a woman, recalled, My biggest fear was that I would get arrested. My second biggest fear was that my picture would be in a newspaper or on a television report in my mother's dress. Both patrons and police recalled that a sense of discomfort spread very quickly, spurred by police who began to assault some of the lesbians by feeling some of them up inappropriately while frisking them. Uh, yep. 
survived a little bit though yeah. this was a yeah. quote from an anonymous stonewall riots participant when did you ever see a fag fight back now times were a change in tuesday night was the last night for bullshit predominantly the theme was this shit has got to stop yeah. mm -hmm. the police were to transport the bar's alcohol and patron uh, and patrol wagons 28 cases of beer and 19 bottles of hard liquor were seized, but the patrol, but patrol, the patrol, <laughs> the, patron. <laughs> the, patron. the patrol wagons had yeah, not sure. yet arrived. So patrons were required to wait in line for about 15 minutes. Those who were not arrested were released from the front door and, but they did not leave quickly as usual. Instead, they stopped outside and a crowd began to grow and watch within minutes between 100 to 150 people had congregated outside. Some after they were released, uh, sometime after they were released from inside the stone wall and some after noticing the police cars in the crowd, although the police forcefully pushed or kicked some patrons out of the bar, some customers were uh, released by the police performed for the crowd by posing and saluting the police in an exaggerated fashion. <laughs> the crowd's applause encouraged them further. Wrists were limp, hair was primped, and reactions to the applause were classic. When the first patrol wagon arrived, Inspector Pine recalled that the crowd, most of whom were homosexual, had grown to at least 10 times the number of people who were arrested, and they all became very quiet. Confusion over radio communication delayed the arrival of a second wagon. The police began escorting mafia members into the first wagon to, to the cheers of the bystanders. Next, regular employees were loaded into the wagon. By A bystander shouted, Gay power! Someone began singing, We shall overcome. And the crowd reacted with amusement and general good humor mixed with growing and intensive hostility. An officer shoved a transvestite who responded by hitting him on the head with her purse as the crowd began to boo. Author Edmund White, who had been passing by, recalled, Everyone's restless, angry, and high-spirited. No one has a slogan. No one even has an attitude, but something's brewing. Pennies, their beer, then beer bottles were thrown at the, at the wagon as a rumor spread through the crowd that patrons still inside the bar were being beaten. A scuffle broke out when a woman in handcuffs was escorted from the door of the bar to the waiting police wagon several times. She escaped repeatedly and fought with four of the police, swearing and shouting for about 10 minutes. Described as a typical New York butch and a Dyke Stone butch, she had been hit on the head by an officer with a baton for, as one witness claimed, complaining that her handcuffs were too tight. Yep. Hmm. Sounds... Sounds like a lot. Like nowadays, bystanders recalled <laughs> that the women who identified remains unknown. Storm DeLavar has been identified by some, including herself, as the woman. But accounts vary. Sparked the crowd to fight when she looked at bystanders and shouted, "Why don't you guys do something?" After an officer picked her up and heaved her into the back of the wagon, the crowd became a mob and went berserk. It was at that moment that the scene became explosive. And I'm going to stop you right there. We're going to stop for an ad break from Anchor, and we will be right back. All right. So, the police tried to restrain some of the crowd, knocking a few people down, which incited bystanders even more. 
Some of those handcuffed in the wagon escaped when police left them unattended, deliberately, according to some witnesses, which mm -hmm, I'm sure. As the crowd tried to overturn the police wagon, two, pol two police cars and the wagon with a few slashed tires left immediately with Inspector Pine urging them to return as soon as possible. The commotion attracted more people who learned what was happening. Someone in the crowd declared that the bar had been raided because they didn't pay off the cops, to which someone else yelled, let's pay them off. Coins sailed through the air towards the police as the crowd shouted, pigs and faggot cops. Beer cans were thrown and the police laughed. Wait, 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 stop. The queens were throwing coins. Coins, honey. They were throwing coins. Coins. Oh, honey. you know shit was serious if they were throwing coins, and honey. Hell, that's tip oh, money. That's tip. Yeah. That's real important. In 1969, they were throwing coins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah, that's money. Apparently, like. according to my mama and Aunt Tony, for a quarter, you could go get a soda and a candy bar from, from a gas station at that time. Mm -hmm. Oh, back in those days, my parents' rent <laughs> was like 50 bucks. Yeah, a home uh, like a home mortgage was literally like seventy five to one hundred dollars a month. They only had to pay the homes cost like five thousand. But we digress. And like <laughs> and like cars back then, <laughs> six hundred bucks. Yeah. Well, and they they obviously thought that's what the cops were worth because I mean the cops were being paid off already. Like mm -hmm. what's different from now? Exactly. Like, yeah. <clears throat> so or I'll be throwing all my pennies at you, and it ain't gonna be no. Quarters. Yeah, right. Here, get, I need to get rid of these panties here. Ah! Sorry, choke on that. So, beer cans were thrown and the police lashed out, dispersing some of the crowd who found a construction site nearby with stacks of bricks. The police, outnumbered by between 500 and 600 people, grabbed several people, including folk singer and mentor of Bob Dylan, Dave Van Ronk. <laughs> who had been attracted to the revolt from a bar two doors away from the Stonewall. New York. Yep. Mm -hmm. Though Van Ronk was not gay, he had experienced police violence when he participated in anti-war demonstrations. Said, as far as I was concerned, anybody who'd stand against the cops was all right with me, and that's why I stayed in. Every time he turned around, the cops were pulling some outrage or another. Mm -hmm. Van Ronk was one of 13 <coughs> arrested that night. Ten police officers, including two policewomen, barricaded themselves, Van Ronk, Howard Smith, a column writer for the Village Voice, and several handcuffed detainees inside the Stonewall Inn for their own safety. Multiple accounts of the riot assert that there was no pre-existing organization or apparent cause for the demonstration. What ensued was spontaneous. Michael Fader explained, We had a collective feeling like we'd had enough of this kind of shit. It wasn't anything tangible anybody said to anyone else. It was just kind of like everything over the years had come to a head on that one particular night in the one particular place, and it was not an organized demonstration. Everyone in the crowd felt that we were never going to go back. It was like the last straw. It was like time to reclaim something that had always been taken from us. All kinds of people, all different reasons, but mostly it was total outrage, anger, sorrow, everything combined, and everything just kind of ran its course. It was the police who were doing most of the destruction. We were really trying to get back in and break free, and we felt that we had freedom at last, or freedom to at least show that we demanded freedom. 
we weren't going to be walking meekly in the night and letting them shove us around. It's like standing your ground for the first time and in, in a really strong way. And that's what caught the police by surprise. There was something in the air, freedom a long time overdue, and we were going to fight for it. It took different forms, but the bottom line was we weren't going to go away, and we didn't. And then there's a, there's a photograph that we have here. It's uh, from the New York Daily News on June 29th, 1969, on Sunday. And it shows the street kids who were the first ones to fight with the police. And they look pissed. Yeah, they do. They look so angry. Oh, gosh. There's one with glowy eyes in the back, too. I wouldn't be fucking with them. They got demons. <laughs> they got the demons. I know you guys can't see the picture, but it's... Like you, those cat oh, oh I see. Yeah. I need to yeah. scroll up a we'll little We'll post, post this to the Instagram page. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Do that, yeah. Oh, it's my God. Oh, my God. And just that one dude in the smile. He just... <laughs> I love that. Do you want to say we're coming to hell? We got demons, bitch. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Yeah. Oh, my God. That shit got it. Yep, yep. That's hilarious. Why does this that one look just... like Tilda Swinton? Tilda Swinton? Yeah, no. Uh, third person from the left. Long hair. Looks like Tilda Swinton. <laughs> hey, I mean, you know, time travelers. Right? Maybe. Don't do you Never see know. it? I do see it. Let me see. Third person from the left? Uh-huh. Oh, I should. I yeah. Do you see it? This person right here. <clears throat> Doesn't it look like Tilda Swinton? It does. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, who the fuck are you talking about? Oh, my gosh. Lion Witch in the Wardrobe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, um, uh, Doctor Strange. Yeah. Wait. Tilda Swinton, she played, she played the White Tilda Witch. Swinton. She played the White... Uh, the White Witch and Lion Witch in the you Wardrobe. You said Doctor Strange. She played him. Yeah, she was the bald, the bald Supreme. the Sorcerer Supreme in Doctor Strange. Yeah, and she was in Endgame. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was in Endgame too. Yeah. Right here. It looks just like her. Take it the does. hair away. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> Don't fuck with the gays. Don't fuck with the gays. <laughs> <laughs> Right. What is going to be the name of this episode? Tilda Swinton uh, and Demons. Don't fuck with the game. We are, the guys, we I are trying, it. we are taking this story somewhat seriously, yes, yes. but you know, sometimes when things get a little rough, you just kind of have to The best way to deal with it up a little bit is yeah. to laugh. laugh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We mean no offense to any no, and all those who yeah. were involved in this we always effective. make jokes like we had like the horrible most horrible story you could ever think of and oh, we we're like laughing our asses off so it's okay <laughs> by the way i need to quit doing this because i realized this is a fucking white supremacy symbol I'm doing this. wait what this is really? a white supremacy symbol now mm -hmm. the oh. okay symbol is a white supremacy symbol now I don't know where it came from I don't know, because I don't yeah, pay attention like, to that sort of thing. That's like a younger version of what the fuck. On the Tilda Swinton. Yeah, dude. Okay, <laughs> <Dr>. strange. <laughs> Moving yeah. forward. All right. The only known photograph taken during the first night of the riot shows the homeless youth who slept in nearby Christopher Park scuffling with the police. The Mattachine Society newsletter a month later offered its explanation of why the riots occurred. 
It catered largely to a group of people who are not welcome in or cannot afford other places of homosexual social gathering. The Stonewall became home to these kids. When it was raided, they fought for it. That and the fact that they had nothing to lose other than the most tolerant and broad-minded gay place in town explains why. You know, I'm going to uh, interject here real quick. We Before we started recording this video, I, I, I had to, you know, freshen my mind on Stonewall. I, you know, of course, I have studied up on it and did know the history of it from a young age. But, you know, my stoned mind, brain cells are gone. Um, <laughs> brain cells. So I had to redo a refresh. And on there, uh, someone had said that they said, first things first, these were not riots. Yeah, the uprising. It was an uprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, we still see, you know, things today that they call riots that really aren't necessarily riots. riots. That's why they say, um, like, during, you know, Pride Fest and even during George Floyd's, you know, protests and mm-hmm. quote-unquote riots, the first Pride was a riot. If you want to be, you know, mm-hmm. if you want to call it a riot, the first Pride was a riot. The yeah. first Pride was an uprising. <clears throat> yep. Being oppressed by police. It was a rebellion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're not going to take it, kind of thing. So, garbage cans, garbage bottles, rocks, and bricks were all hurled at the building, breaking the windows. Witnesses attest that flame queens, hustlers, and gay street street kids, the most outcast people in the gay community, were responsible for the first volley of projectiles. Flame queens? The fuck? Yeah, I'm gay and I don't know what that means. What? I know what butch queen is, but like, is that is that that where butch queen comes from? From flame queen? It's because I do apologize. I've not. I've never. I've heard of like. Okay, I've heard Flame Queen used as, like, an insult. Like, right. you're a Flamey Queen. Yeah. Well, and I've heard of the Street Kids before, but... But, like, Flame Queen. Yeah, I've never sure heard of Flame Queen. I, we will have to look that up. We will get back to you with that. Yes. Yeah. So, um, Sarah's looking it up now. Thank you, Google. Thank you, Google. <laughs> yeah. um, so, they were responsible for the first volley of projectiles at the police as well as the uprooting of a parking meter used as a battering ram on the doors of the They stadium. uprooted a meter? These mm-hmm. people yeah. were pissed. I want to know, wait, you wait. Know, you, it's like this. Were they not mounted like, in concrete? Was it like... I'm sure they were. But you have that many people. Like. But the thing is, I feel like it's like they had enough adrenaline running through I'm their just saying, how were power, like, power meters... Kind of like superhuman power for a sec, you know? Yeah. Well, and it's New York, too. Like, yeah. there's are so he... many parking meters in New York. Like, yeah. the upkeep on them. <clears throat> yeah, you get a point. They could, I mean, the old parking meters. But still, they used to park. Okay, continue. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Sylvia Rivera, a self-identified street queen, remember, 
You've been treating us like shit all these years. Uh-uh. Now it's our turn. It was one of the greatest moments in my life. The mob lit garbage on fire and stuffed it through the broken windows as the police grabbed a fire hose. Because it had no water pressure, the hose was ineffective in dispersing the crowd and seemed only to encourage them. Wait, so wait, what they wanted to do turned into a wet t-shirt contest. Basically. Yeah, 1960 like... wet t-shirt contest. Uh, oh. Okay, so apparently, um, according to um, Glossby.com, Flame Queen is a homosexual and often cross-dressing man acting in an ostentation and flaunting manner akin to a diva. And okay. I didn't say anything about like it being derogatory. So like, like, Femme know. Queen kind Femme of Queen. Like, okay. Almost, yeah. like, but I'm sorry. I I, I so for those if, I, if you're calling me crazy, like how have you never heard of Flame Queen? Maybe Fishy Queen or I don't yeah. know what a good equivalent to today. But Ballroom culture I've and drag heard. race has kind of ruined me. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think anyone, I don't think I've heard anyone use Flame Queen. Yeah, I've never heard of that before. But, I mean, maybe New York. Yeah. It has a culture all its own. Uh, yeah, like million, yeah. like what, how many people? Oh, yeah. So many people. Right. It, it truly little, is the city that island. sleeps. Yeah. All right. So, the Tactical Patrol Force, TPF, of the New York City Police Department arrived to free the police that were trapped inside the stone wall. One officer's eye was cut, and a few others were bruised from being struck by flying debris. Bob Kohler, who was walking his dog by the stone wall that night, saw the TPF arrive. I had been in enough riots to know the fun was over. The cops were totally humiliated. This never, ever happened. They were angrier than I guess they had ever been because everybody else had rioted, but the fairies were not supposed to riot. No group had ever forced cops to retreat before, so the anger was just enormous. God, I bet that was for them, threatening their masculinity and oh shit. Oh my, like, their egos. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh-huh. They said, I mean, they wanted to kill, and that's terrible, and also not surprising, and sad. Mm, yeah. Uh, with larger numbers, police detained anyone they could and put them in patrol wagons to go to jail, though Inspector Pine recalled fights erupted with the transvestites who wouldn't go into the patrol wagon. His recollection was corroborated by another witness across the street who said, all I could see about who was fighting was that it was transvestites and they were fighting furiously. The TPF formed God. a phalanx and attempted to clear the streets by marching slowly and pushing the crowd back. The mob openly mocked the police. The crowd cheered, started impromptu kick lines, and sang to the tune of Ta Ra Ra Boom Die. We are the Stonewall Girls. We wear our hair in curls. We don't wear underwear. We show our pubic hair. Which God. work. <laughs> yeah. Do do it in the singing voice. Come on, come Snaps on. all around. I don't know what the melody is. Ta ra ra boom da. Ta ra ra boom da. I don't know. <laughs> Make something up. Sexy. I don't know. I don't know. Lucy and Jeff Scott. Reported in the Village Voice, 
a stagnant situation there brought on some gay tomfoolery. Oh, tomfoolery. Tomfoolery. Foolery. Is that $5 word? Foolery? Did he open up a brewery? What in the tom? This is some tomfoolery. Some gay tomfoolery. Some gay tomfoolery in the form of a chorus line facing the line of helmeted and club carrying cops. Just as the line got into a full kick routine, the TPF advanced again and cleared the crowd of screaming gay powerites down Christopher to 7th Avenue. One participant who had been in the Stonewall during the raid recalled, the police rushed us and that's when I realized this is not a good thing to do because they got me in the back with a nightstick. Another account stated, I just can't ever get that one sight out of my mind. The cops with the nightsticks and the kick line on the other side. It was the most amazing thing. And all of a sudden, that kick line, which I guess was a spoof on the machismo, right? Is that what that is? Okay. I think that's when I felt rage. Because people were getting smashed with bats. And for what? A kick line. Which I love that. I love that so much. Like... They kick line them? What, what, uh, What a statement to make with that um what is that the picture of christopher park we're looking at here um many of the demonstrators after the first night of rioting uh came to christopher park to talk about what had happened and it now has a sculpture of four white figures by george seagal that commemorates the milestone in the park. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, Craig Rodwell, owner of the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop, reported watching police chase participants through the crooked streets only to see them appear around the next corner behind the police. Members of the mob stopped cars, overturning one of them to block Christopher Street. Jack Nichols and Liga Clark League? Not sure. Lige? Lige? I have no idea. Yeah. Elijah Clark, I think. Okay. In their column, printed in Screw, declared that massive crowds of angry protesters chased the police for blocks, screaming, Catch them! By 4 a.m., the streets had nearly been cleared. Many people sat on stoops or gathered nearby in Christopher Park throughout the morning, dazed in disbelief at what had transpired. Many witnesses remembered the surreal and eerie quiet that descended upon Christopher Street, though there continued to be electricity in the air. One commented, there was a certain beauty in the aftermath of the riot. It was obvious, at least to me, that a lot of people really were gay and, you know, this was our street. 13 people had been arrested. Some in the crowd were hospitalized, and four police officers were injured. Almost everything in the Stonewall Inn was broken. Inspector Pine had intended to close and dismantle the Stonewall Inn that night. Payphones, toilets, mirrors, jukeboxes, and cigarette machines were all smashed, possibly in the riot and possibly by the police. Fuckers. Mm-hmm. So... During the siege of the Stonewall, Craig, Wa- Craig Rodwell, excuse me, called the New York Times, the New York Post, and the Daily News to inform them what was happening. What just happened? 
Oh, I'm so sorry. The touchpad went crazy and I lost my place. <laughs> God damn. Hey, at least we're not dealing with Sarah's uh, speak to text. Uh-huh. I don't know. There we go. I'm so sorry about that. A second night of writing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so all three of the papers covered the riots. The Daily News placed coverage on the front page. News of the riots spread quickly throughout Greenwich Village, fueled by rumors that it had been organized by the students for a democratic society, the Black Panthers, or triggered by a homosexual police officer whose roommate went dancing at the Stonewall against the officer's wishes. All day Saturday, June 28th, the people, people came to stare at the burned and blackened Stonewall Inn. Graffiti appeared on the walls of the bar, declaring drag power, they invaded our rights, support gay power, and legalize gay bars. Along with accusations of police looting and regarding the status of the bar, we are open. The next night, rioting again surrounded Christopher Street. Participants remembered differently which night was more frantic or violent. Many of the same people returned from the previous evening, hustlers, street youths, and queens, but they were joined by police provocateurs, curious bystanders, and even tourists. Remarkable to many was the sudden exhibition of homosexual affection in the public, as described by one witness. From going to places where you had to knock on a door and speak to someone through a peephole in order to get in, we were just out. We were in the streets. Thousands of people had gathered in front of the stone wall, which had opened again, choking Christopher Street until the crowd spilled into the adjoining blocks. The throng surrounded buses and cars, harassing the occupants, unless they either admitted they were gay or indicated their support for the demonstrations. Sylvia Rivera saw a friend of hers jump on a nearby car trying to drive through. The crowd rocked the car back and forth, terrifying its occupants. Another of Rivera's friends, Marsha P. Johnson, an African-American street queen, climbed a lamppost and dropped a heavy bag onto the hood of a police car, shattering the windshield. On the Damn. previous evening, Damn. I know. Heavy-ass back shit! <laughs> As on the previous evening, fires were started in garbage cans throughout the neighborhood. More than 100 police were present from the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 9th precincts, but after 2 a.m., the TPF arrived again. Kick lines and police chases waxed and waned when police captured demonstrators, whom the majority of witnesses described as sissies or swishes. The crowd surged to recapture them. Street battling ensued again until 4 a.m. Oh, my gosh. I know. That's wow. Crazy. Beat poet and longtime Greenwich Village resident Allen Ginsberg lived on uh, lived on of the Christopher Street and happened upon the jubilant chaos. After he learned of the riot that had occurred the previous evening, he stated, Gay power, isn't that great? It's about time we did something to assert ourselves. And visited the open Stonewall Inn for the first time. While walking home, he declared to Lucian Truscott, you know, the guys there were so beautiful. They've lost that wounded look that fags had all had 10 years ago. Mm. Activity in Greenwich Village was sporadic on Monday and Tuesday, partly due to rain. 
Police and village residents had a few altercations as both groups antagonized each other. Craig Rodwell and his partner Fred Sargent took the opportunity the morning after the first riot to print and distribute 5,000 leaflets, one of them reading, Get the Mafia and the Cops Out of Gay Bars. The leaflets called for gay people to own their own establishments, for a boycott of the Stonewall and other Mafia-owned bars, and for public pressure on the mayor's office to investigate the intolerable situation. Not everyone in the gay community considered the revolt of a, pos a positive development. To many older homosexuals and many members of the Mattachine Society, who had worked throughout the 1960s to promote homosexuals as no different from heterosexuals, the display of violence and effeminate behavior was embarrassing. Randy Wicker, who had marched in the first gay picket lines before the White House in 1965, said, The screaming queens forming chorus lines and kicking went against everything that I wanted people to think about homosexuals. That we were a bunch of drag queens in the village acting disorderly and tacky and cheap. Yeah, but they are. Yeah. That is part of it. <laughs> right. It's not uh, all of it, but it's part of it. Yeah. Others found the closing of the Stonewall End uh, termed a sleaze joint as advantageous to the village. On Wednesday, however, the Village Voice ran reports of the riots written by Howard Smith and Lucian Trescott that included unflattering descriptions of the events and its participants, forces of faggotry, limp wrists, and Sunday fag follies. A mob descended upon Christopher Street once again and threatened to burn down the offices of the Village Voice. Also in the mob of between 500 and 1,000 were other groups that had unsuccessful confrontations with the police and were curious how the police were defeated in this situation. Another explosive street battle took place with injuries to demonstrators and police alike, local shops getting looted apparently by non-gay protesters, and arrests of five people. The incidents on Wednesday night lasted about an hour and were summarized by one witness. The word is out. Christopher Street shall be liberated. The facts have had it with <clears throat> oppression. The feeling of urgency spread around uh, throughout Greenwich Village, even to people who had not witnessed the riots. Many who were moved by the rebellion attended organizational meetings sensing an opportunity to take action. On July 4th, 1969, the Mattachine Society performed its annual picketing in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia called the Annual Reminder. Organizers Craig Rodwell, Frank Kameny, Randy Wicker, Barbara Giddings, and Kay LaHoussen, which again, so sorry for the names, <laughs> who had all participated for several years, took a bus along with other picketers from New York City to Philadelphia. Since 1965, the pickets had been very controlled. Women wore skirts and men wore suits and ties, and all marched quietly in organized lines. This year, Rodwell remembered feeling restricted by the rules Kameny had set. When two women spontaneously held hands, Kameny broke them apart, saying, none of that, none of that. Rodwell, however, convinced about 10 couples to hold hands. The hand-holding couples made Kameny furious, but they earned more press attention than all of the previous marches. Participant Lily Vincennes remembered, It was clear that things were changing. 
People who had felt oppressed were now felt empowered. Rodwell returned to New York City, determined to change the established quiet, meek ways of trying to get attention. One of his first priorities was planning Christopher Street Liberation Day. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And we've got a picture here of uh, the uh, Christopher Street Liberation Day, um, the demonstration there in London. Um, said the GLF in the UK held its first meeting in a basement classroom at the London School of Economics on October 13, 1970. The organization was very informal, instituting marches and other activities, leading to the first British Gay Pride March in 1972. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop you there, and we're going to have another act break. Although the Medicine Society had existed since the 1950s, many of their methods now seemed too mild for people who had witnessed or been inspired by the riots. Mattachine recognized the shift in attitudes and a story from their news newsletter entitled The Hairpin Drop Heard Around the World. When a Mattachine officer suggested an admissible, amicable, and sweet candlelight visual demonstration, a man in the audience fumed and shouted, Sweet bullshit! That's the role society has been forcing these queens to play. With a flyer announcing, Do you think homosexuals are revolting? You bet your sweet ass we are! The Gay Liberation Front was soon formed, the first gay organization to use gay in its name. Previous organizations such as the Madison Society, the Daughters of Belitis, Belitis, and various homophile groups had masked their purpose by deliberately choosing obscure names. The rise of militancy militancy became apparent to Frank Kameny and Barbara Giddings, who had worked in homophile organizations for years and were both very public about their roles. When they attended to when, when they attended a GLF meeting meeting to see the new group, a young GLF member demanded to know who they were and what their credentials were. <clears throat> uh, Giddings nonplussed stammered, I'm gay, that's why I'm here. The GLF borrowed tactics from and aligned themselves with black and anti-war demonstrators with the ideal that they could work to restructure American society. They took on causes of the Black Panthers marching to the Women's House of Detention in support of Afini Shakir and other radical new left causes. Four months after the group formed, however, it disbanded when members were unable to agree on operating procedure. Um, within six months of the Stonewall riots, activists started a citywide newspaper called Gay. They considered it necessary because the most liberal publication in the city 
The Village Voice refused to print the word gay. The Village Voice. I know. Every time and I hear any that, passing fan. And the GLF advertisements seeking new members and volunteers. Two other newspapers were initiated within a six-week period. Come out and gay power. The, re- <laughs> the readership of these three periodicals quickly climbed to between 20,000 and 25,000. GLF members uh, organized several same-sex dances, but GLF meetings were chaotic. <clears throat> when uh, Bob Kohler asked for clothes and money to help the homeless youth who had participated in the riots, many of whom slept in Christopher Park or Sheridan Square, the response was a discussion on the downfall of capitalism. <laughs> in uh, late December 1969, several people who had visited GLF meetings and left out of frustration formed the Gay Activists Alliance. Sorry, I had to wet the lips. Get a little dry. <laughs> the GAA was to be entirely focused on gay issues and more orderly. Their constitution started, We as liberated homosexual activists demand the freedom for expression of our dignity and value as human beings. The GAA developed and perfected a confrontational tactic called a ZAP, where they would catch a politician off guard during a public relations opportunity and force him or her to acknowledge gay and lesbian rights. City councilmen were zapped, and Mayor John Lindsay was zapped several times, once on television when GAA members made up the majority of the audience, Raids on gay bars did not stop after the Stonewall riots. In March 1970, Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine raided the Zodiac and 17 Borough Street, an after-hours gay club with no liquor or occupancy license called the Snake Pit was soon raided, and 167 people were arrested. One of, one of them was Diego Vinales, an Argentinian national, so, so frightened that he might be deported as a homosexual that he tried to escape the police precinct by jumping out of a two-story window, impaling himself on oh a 14-inch spike fence. Oh, my Jesus. God. Yeah. What? Yeah. It's worse. It gets worse. The New York Daily News printed a graphic photo of the young man's impalement on the front page. On the front page? On the front page. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. GAA members organized a march from Christopher Park to the 6th Prison precinct in which hundreds of gay men, lesbians, and liberal sympathizers peacefully confronted the TPF. They also sponsored a letter-writing campaign to Mayor Lindsay in which the Greenwich Village Democratic Party and Congressman Ed Koch Mm -hmm. 
sent pleas to end raids on gay bars. Cook. It's cook. That's how you pronounce it. It's weird. It's cook. It's cook. Ed cook. Okay. Uh huh. Okay. It's cook. I promise you. I have I, <laughs> I mean, have a really good friend. I have I have a friend whose name is spelled like that. It is oh. cook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like ah, oh, I'm glad somebody knows how to read shit. <laughs> um, they sent pleas to end raids on gay bars in the city. Uh, the Stonewall Inn lasted only a few weeks after the riot. By October 1969, it was up for rent. Uh, village residents surmised it was too notorious a location, and Rodwell's boycott discouraged business. Oh. Uh, Christopher Street Liberation Day on June 28, 1970, marked the first anniversary of the Stonewall Riots with an assembly on Christopher Street with a simultaneous gay pride marches in Los Angeles and Chicago. These were the first gay pride marches in the U.S. history. <clears throat> the next year, gay pride marches took place in Boston, Dallas, Milwaukee, London, Perry, West Berlin, and Stockholm. Stockholm. Wow, Mar- in Dallas. Yeah. Wow. I'm surprised. Well, Dallas you know, is actually kind of blue, uh, uh, to be honest. Blue. I was born in Dallas. Uh, the march in New York covered 51 blocks from Christopher Street to Central Park. Wow. Yeah. That'd be so cool. Mm -hmm. Oh my god. I would love to go to New York City. Trust me. Neither have I. I know. Roy has. Mm -hmm. Nice. That'd be so cool to go. During New Year's. He was there over New Year's. Got to see all the confetti. It was amazing. That'd be so cool. Mm -hmm. Get the red music. Yeah. Oh. Not on the streets, though. Way too many people. Yeah. yeah. Can't even, like, fucking itch my ass. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me, can I? While you're back there, can you? Six just... feet, ma'am. Six feet. Yeah. yeah that's going to be hard. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, uh, the march took less than half the scheduled time due to excitement, but also due to wariness about walking through the city with gay banners and signs. Although the parade permit was delivered only two hours before the start of the march, the marchers encountered little resistance from onlookers. The New York Times reported that the marchers took up the entire... Oh! Sorry, guys. It fucking... went back to the beginning. And it's it, it's having issues. Hold this on. is what Sorry. happened earlier. I didn't do anything that time. No. no. <laughs> God. Keep going. Keep going. And stop. Keep yeah, go down, go down, go down. Keep going. There you okay. are. <laughs> You're oh, there. I, I didn't even touch it. I'm just, I just want to scoot it up a bit. All right, where was I? Uh, North Tire Ford that the marchers took up the entire... Yeah, took up the entire street for about 15 city blocks. Reporting by the Village Voice was positive, describing the outfront resistance that grew out of the police raid on the Stonewall Inn one year ago. 
There was little open animosity, and some bystanders applauded when a tall, pretty girl carrying a sign, I am a lesbian, walked by. Uh, the New York Times coverage of Gay Liberation Day, 1970. By 1972, the part participating cities included Atlanta, Buffalo, Detroit, Washington, D.C., Miami, Minneapolis, and Philadelphia, as well as San Francisco. Frank Kameny. Tommy? Frank Kameny? Soon realized the pivotal change brought by the Stonewall Riots, an organizer of gay activism in the 1950s. He was used to persuasion, trying to convince heterosexuals that gay people were no different than they were. When he and other people marched in front of the White House, the State Department, and Independence Hall only five years earlier, their objective was to look as if they could work for the U.S. government. Ten people marched with Kameny then, and they alerted no press to their intentions. Although he was stunned by the upheaval by participants in the annual reminder in 1969, he later observed, by the time of Stonewall, we had 50 to 60 gay groups in the country. A year later, there was at least 1,500 by two years later, to the extent that a count could be made, it was 2,500. The growth of lesbian feminism in the 1970s at times so conflicted with the gay liberation movement that some lesbians refused to work with the gay men. Damn. Oh, yeah, no. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, that's so true. Uh, that's Many lesbians found men's attitudes pray patriarchal and chauvinistic chauvinistic and saw in gay men the same misguided notions about women as they saw in heterosexual men. So they pretty much saw like gay men just the same thing as heterosexual were men. That's how feminists saw it. Like true feminists back in the day. Yeah, uh, all men were bastards. Didn't matter if you were gay, straight, queen, transvestite, trans, mm -hmm. okay. Ooh, okay. I just said, I you had a dick, I, you were a dick. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Yeah. The uh, <clears throat> issues most important to gay men entrapment and public solicitation. Solicitation. I don't know why I cannot read today. Mm -hmm. Were not shared by lesbians. In 1977, a lesbian pride rally was organized as an alternative to sharing gay men's issues, especially what Adrian Rich termed the violent self-destructive world of the gay bars. Veteran gay activist Barbara Giddings chose to work in the gay rights movement, explaining it's a matter of where does it hurt the most. For me, it hurts the most not in the female arena, but the gay arena. President Barack Obama declared June 2009 Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Pride Month, citing the riots as a reason to commit to achieving equal justice under law for LGBT Americans. The year marked the 40th anniversary of the riots, giving journalists and activists cause to reflect on progress made since 1969. 
Frank Rich noted in the New York Times that no federal legislation exists to protect the rights of gay Americans. An editorial in the Washington Blade <coughs> compared the scruffy, violent activism during and following the Stonewall riots to the lackluster response to failed promises given by President Obama for being ignored. Wealthy LGBT activists reacted by promising to give less money to Democratic causes. Two years later, the Stonewall Inn served as a rallying point for celebrations after the New York State Senate voted to pass same-sex marriage. The act was signed into law by Governor Andrew Cuomo on uh, June 24, 2011. <clears throat> Individual states continue to battle with homophobia. The, Mo the Missouri Senate passed a measure its supporters characterized as a religious freedom bill that could change the state's constitution despite Democrats' objections in their 39-hour filibuster. This bill allows the the protection of certain religious organizations and individuals from being penalized by the state because of their sincere religious beliefs or practices concerning marriage between two persons of the same sex, discriminating <clears throat> against homosexual patronage. 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 Jesus. Mm -hmm. I need to learn patronage. How to patronage. <laughs> I was trying to be fan fancy with it, damn it. Yeah, I like patronage. Yeah, that's probably all these fucking pronounce it. Speaking of patronage, if you want to support us on Patreon, Patreon you can. You <laughs> can. <laughs> on Patreon. <laughs> Obama also referenced the Stonewall riots and he called for full equality during his second inaugural address on January 21st, 2013. We, the people, declare today that the most evident of truths that all of us are created equal is the star that guides us still, just as it guided our forebears through Seneca Falls and Selma and Stonewall. Our journey and not complete until our gay brothers and sisters are treated like anyone else under the law. For if we are truly created equal, then surely the love we commit to one another must be equal as well. This was a historic moment being the first time that a president mentioned the gay rights of the word gay in an inaugural address. In 2014, a marker dedicated to the Stonewall riots was included in the Legacy Walk an outdoor public display in Chicago celebrating LGBT history and people. I just wanted to um, come in here and say oh, uh, my, my other friend Ashley and I, um, we went to Pride in St. Louis. I think it was like the day after gay marriage was legalized. Mm. And they had like mass weddings at Pride. Like oh, wow. all of these gay couples got married and like, I'm getting chills just like talking about it, but like they had like all the floats in the parade of like all the newly married couples and everything. And oh, like, cool. it was amazing. We were bawling. Everybody in the freaking crowd was bawling. And then of course, you know, Westboro Baptist Church was there and I'm just like, stay the fuck over there, bitch. I'm over there. Wow. Stay, stay in your lane. Stay in the lane, bitch. Stay, stay in your lane. Huh? Are they still a thing? They are. Oh, God. They should stop. 
Yeah, like can, just be like, can you not? Can you not? All right. <clears throat> but for June 2019, Stonewall 50 World Pride New York City 2019, produced by Heritage of Pride and partnership with the with the I Love New York programs LGBT division was held in New York to commemorate commemorate yes and commemorate the 50 year the anniversary of the Stonewall uprising I'm sorry the final official estimate included 5 million visitors attending attending in Manhattan alone making it the largest LGBTQ celebration in history June, it, June, oh gosh, not again. No. no! June is traditionally Pride Thank Month in you. New York City and worldwide, and the events were held under the auspices of the annual New York City Pride March. An apology from New York City Police Commissioner James P. O'Neill on June 6, 2019, coincided with World Pride being celebrated in New York City. O'Neill apologized on behalf of the NYPD for the actions of its officers at the Stonewall Uprising in 1969. The official commemoration of the Stonewall Uprising happened on 28th of June on Christopher Street in front of Stonewall Inn. In 2018, 49 years after the Uprising, Stonewall Day was announced as a com- com- You're wearing off on me. Uh, commemoration Day, Day by, by Pride, Pride Live. Live. You know where you're at? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Social advocacy and community engagement organization. <laughs> Figured I'd pass it on the love. <laughs> the second Stonewall Day was held on Friday, June 28, 2019, outside the Stonewall Inn. During this event, Pride Live introduced their Stonewall Ambassadors program to raise awareness for the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. Those appearing at the event included Gina Rosero. Is that you Yeah, that's right. Gina Rosero, First Lady of New York. City, Shirlene McRae, Josephine Scriver, Wilson Cruz, Ryan Jamal, or Ryan Jamal Swain, Angelica Ross, (laughs) Donatella Versace, Congeta Horst, Bob the Drag Queen, Whoopi Goldberg, and Lady Gaga. With a performance oh, Lady by Alex Newell and Alicia Keys. Yeah. In May 2015, the New York City Landmakers Preservation Commission announced it would officially consider designating the Stonewall Inn as a landmark, making it the first city location to be considered based on its LGBT cultural significance alone. Good. Yeah. Then, so it can never be torn down? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it is a it is a landmark. It is just, like yeah. a part of our history. Like. Yeah. I finally <laughs> on June twenty third, uh twenty fifteen, the New York City uh landmarks preservation commission un- unanimously. Uh, uh, yes, thank you, gosh. <laughs> Approved the designation of the Stonewall Inn as a city landmark, making it the first landmark honored for its role in the fight for gay rights. On June 24, 2016, President Obama announced the establishment of the Stonewall National Monument, 
site to be administered by the National Park Service. The designation which followed transfer of city parkland to the federal government protects Christopher Park in adjacent areas totaling more than seven acres. The Stonewall Inn is within the boundaries of the monument but remains privately owned. The National Park Foundation formed a new nonprofit organization to raise funds for a ranger station and interpretive exhibits for the monument. If you're able to celebrate Pride this year, please do or make everyday Pride Day. Remember, you are valid, you are important, and you matter. The world would be a darker place without you, and we will be your family if your family doesn't want to accept you. From all of us at the Creep Show, happy Pride! Happy Pride! We want to thank Preston and Roy for joining us today on the Creep Show, and thank you for listening and supporting us. That's Ashley, that's Preston, that's Roy, I'm Sarah, that was the Creep Show. Stay creepy! Well, stay creepy there, Wondong Chai. Wondong Chai!